This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our home and via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. As COVID cases rise across the district, the Madison School Board member Nikki Vandermeulen has called for action to help staff stay home when they are sick. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Vandermeulen said in an interview today that staff at the schools need more paid time off to help encourage sick teachers and staff from coming to work sick. Current MMSD policy says that teachers and staff must stay home if they display symptoms of COVID-19 until they are able to receive a negative test result. During that time, they're made to use paid time off or sick leave to help cover the costs of being home from work. Vandermeulen says that she has received around 80 emails from staff complaining about the lack of a COVID-19 sick leave policy. Board President Ali Muldrow says the issue will be taken up during a special workshop this Monday night. WPR reports that 50% of Wisconsin's working women are considering leaving their jobs. The research was released today by the Milwaukee-based Kane Communications Group. This is above the national average conducted by McKinsey and Company that found that 40% of women nationally are considering leaving their jobs. According to the report, the top reason Wisconsin women cited for why they would leave is feeling undervalued in their current role. Of that 50% of working women in Wisconsin, the report found that 60% of those women worked in retail, food service, and hospitality industries. Julie Granger, Executive Vice President of the Metro Milwaukee Association of Commerce, said that employers need to change their attitudes toward their employees as everyone wants to feel like they're contributing to something bigger. A new bipartisan bill was introduced to the state legislature this week to extend Wisconsin's postpartum Medicaid coverage to a full year after giving birth. WPR reports that current law only allows pregnant people in Wisconsin 60 days of coverage after birth. The bill even has large amounts of support from both Republicans and Democrats. Of the 32 supporters of the bill in the Assembly, it's evenly split between the parties. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed nation, with around 700 people dying of as a result of pregnancy each year, with black women about three times more likely to die than white women. The bill is currently circulating for co-sponsors. Today, early cancer detection company Exact Sciences announced their commitment of $500,000 to support a black business hub in Madison. Urban League of Greater Madison's plan to break ground for the hub zone on the south side will connect private entrepreneurs, the public sector, job seekers, and community organizations. Exact Sciences CEO Kevin Conroy said, quote, the hub will offer formal and informal programming, create new supply chain opportunities for area businesses, and give entrepreneurs a place to call home. The center will include retail and office spaces, co-working and meeting space, a rentable commercial kitchen, and business assistance and mentoring programs. Dr. Ruben Anthony, Urban League of Greater Madison president and CEO, called the hub, quote, a vibrant cultural business and community site that invites people to come together to support new businesses and build greater understanding of the challenges and opportunities we all share. 
Madison's city council granted the Parks Division authority to remove an abandoned boat that has been illegally moved moored at a public pier in Lake Mendota since August. The boat's owner has been ticketed by the city 71 times so far for a total of $8,800. He told the Wisconsin State Journal that he couldn't find a specialty company to remove the over 14-foot-wide boat. The rare move by the city is in part due to the time crunch of the change of seasons in which the ice on the lake could threaten to sink the boat. Park Superintendent Eric Neps told the council that the boat removal would be costly, but a sunken boat would be more costly and would create safety and environmental hazards. Leaders at the University of Wisconsin have signed off on a tuition increase for out-of-state students at seven campuses today, Associated Press reports. The increase comes as a tuition freeze, which has been in effect for the last nine years, ended over the summer. Campuses affected by the increase include those in Madison, Eau Claire, Oshkosh, Platteville, River Falls, Stout, and Whitewater, with UW-Madison undergraduates seeing the biggest increase of $743. The Board of Regents Finance Committee approved the plan today, setting up a final vote before the full board on Friday. And public health officials report that half of Dane County youth aged 5 to 11 now have at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Children became eligible for the Pfizer vaccine in early November after approval from the Centers for Disease Control. Dane County's vaccination rate for youth is much stronger compared to national data of 17% vaccinated youth across the country. But results are very early and comprehensive data is not yet available across Wisconsin. Vaccine appointments for people five and older and boosters for people 18 and up are available at all three public health clinics, the arena at Alliant Energy Center, the PHMDC's East Washington office, and also their South Madison office. And now on to today's top story. Madison traffic can be a tricky thing, but what streets in Madison are the most dangerous? A new report from the City of Madison's Traffic Division has has crash facts for 2020. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout dove into the numbers. Last year, there were fewer total crashes in the City of Madison, but 2020 also saw the highest number of fatal crashes over the last five years. That's according to a new report released by the City's Traffic Engineering Division. The current five-year average for fatal crashes is nine crashes, with 2020 having the highest number of fatal crashes within the last five years with 12. In comparison, there were 33 fatal crashes throughout all of Dane County in 2020. Those and many more numbers are included in a 2020 Crash Facts report presented at last night's Transportation Commission meeting. The report provides details of all reported crashes that took place in the city of Madison last year. That report defines reported crashes as any crash that caused injury as well as at least $1,000 in property damages. The report also only looks at publicly owned streets, so no privately owned roads or those maintained by UW-Madison. The report is given every year, but has received some updates as part of Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway's Vision Zero plan, which aims at eliminating traffic deaths on city streets by 2030. Mark Winters with the Department of Traffic Engineering explains why 
weather report is important. It's full of statistics that drivers can use to find out what <clears throat> what other what mistakes other drivers are are making. It's also just our, our uh, it's our starting point for further analysis on uh, when we do street projects and uh, or safety projects. In total, 12 crashes led to 15 fatalities out of a total of 3,309 total reported crashes in 2020. That's fewer crashes than the five-year average of 4,862 crashes. Although the data was collected over the COVID-19 pandemic, average weekday traffic numbers had stayed roughly the same according to the report. At intersections, there were 2,037 vehicle crashes last year, 622 of which caused injury, and seven led to fatalities. According to the report, a majority of those crashes occurred at traffic lights, 56%. Of the top 30 highest crash intersections in the city, only one was not with a traffic light. That would be the intersection of Schmaderman and East Washington Avenue, which has a stop sign. The intersection of Buckeye and Stoughton Road on the city's east side saw the highest number of crashes for a total of 29. Other intersections that saw high crash rates were Gammon and Watts Road on the west side, Stoughton Road and East Washington Avenue, and West Johnson and Park Street. But if you're looking to find the most dangerous intersection in Madison, that would involve using a metric over a five-year period called Equivalent Property Damage Only Scores, or EPDO scores. City traffic engineer Yang Tao explains where the scores came from and why they are important to the city of Madison. So, yeah, these uh, was created by Wisconsin Traffic Operations and a Safety Lab, uh, also along with the uh, Madison Area uh, Transportation Planning Board. Uh, so the idea of this is that um, not all crashes are the same. You know, some have a much bigger impacts uh, than others. And, you know, simply looking at crashes by uh, frequency uh, is not the best idea. So we need some way to account for the severity of the crashes. According to EPDO data, the most dangerous intersection in Madison is actually the intersection of Acewood Boulevard and Cottage Grove Road on the city's southeast side. Although it has fewer total crashes, 32, it is the only intersection to have multiple fatalities. The highest number of car crashes outside of intersections occurred on John Nolan Drive, six on the 400 block and another five west of the Monona Terrace traffic signal. And of course, there were bike crashes. There were a total of 53 bike crashes in 2020, with 47 of them leading to injuries. None were fatal. Though the bike crashes happened around the entire city, they were mostly concentrated in the downtown area. Another 39 crashes involving pedestrians were recorded in 2020, with two fatalities. Most of these crashes were at signalized intersections and were largely clustered around the areas near the UW campus. Finally, there were five reported moped crashes, with no reported fatalities. Fatalities. Yang says that all of the data is needed to figure out how to make Vision Zero a reality. So Vision Zero is really a collaborative uh, and a collective effort. Uh, it should be comprehensive. Uh, you know, we, uh, we tackle the problem from all uh, different angles. Only doing that, we can achieve our uh, Vision Zero goal. More information on the report, as well as other traffic data in Madison, can be found on the City of Madison's website by searching Traffic Engineering. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy-Hout.
Last week, a Madison Police Department announced that it's the first law enforcement agency in Wisconsin to use a new text alert communication system. It comes from a company called Spider Tech, which sells software to nearly 60 police agencies across 13 states. For more on the technology and all that goes along with it, WORT News Director Sholly Pittman spoke last week with Captain Matt Ty, who oversees community outreach for the Madison Police Department. The new tool will text to Madison community members who call 911 or the non-emergency line with updates about incidents and cases in some circumstances. Captain Tai, tell me more about this software and how it's a shift from the department's current way of following up with individuals. Sure, yeah. This is a, a software company that uh, we were introduced to a couple of years ago. Uh, one of our officers was attending a uh, a, a public information and social media conference. And, and and so we were introduced to this program. And what's very unique is its ability to send automatic uh, messages and information to people who've had contact with the police department, both through text message and through email. And so the software has a lot of different uh, capabilities. But what we're starting out with is two facets of the software. The first um, is sending out victim acknowledgement statements. So people who've reported a, a crime to the Madison Police Department will get uh, an automated message. Uh, either it can go either to email or to text message. And that that message that goes out uh, will just provide some additional information, explain the, the process uh, uh, going forward for their crime. And we think it just is uh, really important to be able to better explain the criminal justice process and the next steps in the crime reporting process to victims. And so that, that message will go out to most uh, people that report victims of crime. There'll be certain ones uh, due to safety concerns that it won't go out to, uh, you know, for example, our domestic violence calls and or, uh, you know, sexual assaults will not get those for safety reasons. But that, uh, so that's the first component of it. And then the second aspect of the software is sending to anybody who contacts the police department an opportunity to participate in a survey. And so this is essentially a customer satisfaction survey that, you know, is, is fairly commonplace in other industries, but but new for the police department. And that will go out again. Uh, the invitation will go out through text message and or email, and people will be able to click on a link if they want to participate in this survey. And it's a, it's a short survey of about 15 questions that allow people to give feedback on, you know, overall impressions of the police department, how the officers did on the particular uh, instance that they had contact with, and then, you know, an open-ended question as well. And it really, a lot of those questions are focused on uh, procedural justice and, you know, if people are, are having a sense that they're being treated fairly and that uh, with respect and that the process is being explained to them. Moving along, communicating with victims of crimes and, and others involved in cases can can be a really delicate business in policing. Sometimes it might not be safe to send a follow-up text. You mentioned that there are exceptions for when this applies. Can you tell me a little more about when this technology will be used and when it won't be? Yeah, again, it's going to be used for most uh, victims of crime. And there are um, uh, so domestic violence uh, calls, uh, sexual assault calls um, will not get this automated message. That doesn't mean that we, you know, we will, we will be following up, uh, you know, more directly with those folks uh, just through our more traditional means with detectives following up um, as opposed to getting an automated message. Okay. 
Um, whenever we talk about new tools and technology, especially in policing, but everywhere, right? We also, you know, talk about human error or biases that can feed into them. One example, Shot Spotter has been a tool that I don't believe the Madison Police Department uses, but um, you know, it is a policing tool. It's a gunshot detection system provided to police departments, and it's been roundly criticized for not being reliable. There are there concerns about adding technology in cases where, you know, errors could have really dire consequences for a a victim. Yeah, and I think that's why we have um, the defaults of certain types of crimes that won't be getting this automated message. So yeah, a lot of thought um, and intention went into pulling out the types of calls that would not get this automatic message. And and again, uh, the the victim acknowledgement message is really just, uh, you know, Letting people know that uh, here's your case number, um, here's where you can expect follow-up. Uh, it goes through explaining that, you know, although we take all uh, crimes at the police department very seriously, we are not able to assign detectives to follow up on, on, on every crime that is reported. So it goes through explaining a little bit of that. And again, you're you're absolutely right that we don't want, uh, there's certain crimes that we certainly do not want this uh, type of automatic message to go out. And so, um, you know, we, we are pretty intentional about that. Um, We just launched the program. Uh, It started December 1st, um, and we'll continue to look for any potential negative uh, uh, consequences of it and and have the ability to continue to evaluate. Um, But we are pretty confident with um, what we've seen with SpiderTech in other communities that they've been, that they've had this rolled out in. You mentioned a little bit ago that this is also a customer satisfaction survey. I'm wondering if there are also concerns about this being tied to uh, people's personal, uh, you know, phone number, right? Does that connection exist? And and have you also been intentional about, um, you know, the the sampling of the survey, right? Um, And that people might be less inclined to share feedback if they know it's tied to their personal information. Are these anonymized? They they are they are anonymized, but they are also. I mean, it's we are responding back to people who've had contact with the police department. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that, that it's always a, it's a fine and delicate balance to get feedback on the police department. Um, at the same time, we feel really strongly that we're, we want to know how we're doing. Um, and if there are ways that we can improve, if there's things that we're, you know, not doing that we should be doing, I mean, that's all information that, that we want to know. And it's very hard to know that information without asking the questions, but uh, you, you, you raise an, an excellent point about exactly what that balance is. And yeah, people may be apprehensive. We know um, that there's certainly trust issues with the police department and the community um, and certainly with, um, you know, some portions of our community more than others, you know, uh, historically marginalized uh, uh, communities. Uh, you know, there's a, there's good reason for a lack of trust with the police department in certain communities, uh, you know, due to, um, you know, just a, a lot of history in our, in our country. But um, we're still feeling that, that, that seeking out and trying to get that feedback and find ways to improve is, uh, is worth doing. When we're talking about this software, it comes from a company called Spider Tech. Spider Tech is owned by a uh, Canadian-based company. Um, it was originally started as a venture capital firm uh, to, to sell 
tools and software to police departments. Um, but now it's owned by Versaterm, which is a Canadian-based company, um, and they sell all kinds of software to public safety agencies. Does the Madison Police Department have an existing relationship with this company? You mentioned that this is one of potentially more tools that could come to the department. Uh, well, the, the SpiderTech platform itself has additional tools, um, and and so we do not have other than other than this system, we don't have any other existing contracts with that company. Um, but it, uh, the SpiderTech itself, there is a pot, there is a way to get up, to send out updates on uh, cases. So, um, and that's something we'll be looking at long term. For example, to be able to make a notification that arrest was made in a in a case, or that the case was uh, referred to the district attorney's office for a charging decision. Those kind of updates are possible um, with the um, with the victim acknowledgement portion of it. We're not instituting those yet. Um, and it really kind of precisely for some of the stuff that you touched on that we want to be, we want to go slow with rolling this out and be intentional um, and make sure that we're not doing anything that would put victims in jeopardy or in risk. So it's something we're excited to pursue, but we're going to start out, uh, you know, uh, with just that, that first victim acknowledgement piece for sort of reasons that you've touched on already in this interview. That was Matt Ty, Captain of Community Outreach for the Madison Police Department. In responding to a follow-up email, Captain Ty clarified that the SpiderTech software initially costs $104,422 for two years and was funded by a U.S. Department of Justice grant called Project Safe Neighborhoods. Now, after two years, the SpiderTech software costs an annual $52,211. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sholly Pittman. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got more stories coming up. We're going to dive into the business of news. Transparency Talk talks redistricting. And Radio Chipstone explores the love of museums. But right now, we're going to take a quick break and check in on some world headlines. We'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Lee Enterprises is one of the largest newspaper groups in the United States. The Davenport-based newspaper publisher owns 77 daily newspapers around the country and five here in Wisconsin, including the, Washington, or the Wisconsin State Journal. Recently, Lee Enterprises has been in the headlines itself after rejecting a bid from a hedge fund called Alden Global, which has a reputation for cutting costs at newspapers after acquiring them. For more on the failed takeover and the state of independent local newspaper chains, WORT producer Nate Wegehout sat down with Rick Edmonds, media business analyst and leader of News Transformation at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies. So, Rick, thank you so much for talking with me here today. I'm glad to be with you. 
So let's start off with today's news. Can you tell us a little bit about the players here? What is Alden Global and what is Lee Enterprises? Yeah, Alden Global is uh, capital is a hedge fund. They uh, are specialists in, in buying newspaper properties. Uh, that's not the only thing they do. And um, have a record now that includes uh, a lot of deep cuts at a uh, group they've owned for some time, and then the Tribune publishing papers that they bought in the summer. Uh, Lee is a longtime uh, uh, group of mostly relatively mid-sized smaller papers, though they've picked up some big ones. And I guess that includes the paper in Madison, right? Yes, that's correct. The Wisconsin State Journal. Yep. So you reported that Alden Global had completed a hostile takeover of Tribune Publishing, who they published the Chicago Tribune and the Baltimore Sun, uh, and that happened over the summer. What did that look like for the company, and could that happen here to Lee Enterprises as well? Yeah, it uh, resulted in about a... uh According to the guild, a uh, 20% or so cut in, in its uh, staff, that is the unionized new staff, within a, a few weeks. And there'd been some fairly substantial reductions before. So uh, Alden was kind of true to their reputation as uh, uh, running bare to the bone in terms of, of uh, news. Uh, Lee itself runs pretty lean shop, but I would uh, expect those kinds of cuts uh, if, if Alden's successful in taking over. I want to talk now a little bit broader scale. How frequent are these types of hedge fund offers to newspaper change, and what does that say about the newspaper industry? Well, good question. Alden has uh, done quite a few of them. Uh, They haven't always been successful. They did try to bid on uh, the McClatchy papers when they were for sale uh, a little over a year ago or a year and a half ago. They weren't successful. Another uh, hedge fund chat of management uh, did buy them, and they've earlier tried to buy. Uh, they tried to buy Gannett, and uh, that probably sort of precipitated a merger between the Gatehouse chain and Gannett. So um, it's common. Uh, Alden particularly seems to, uh, you know, want to gobble up as much as they can. Uh, I think what it shows, and you know, it's a sort of a sobering. Uh, uh, insight is that hedge funds tend to be uh, capital of last resort. Uh, they buy things that hardly anybody else wants. And, uh, uh, you know, we journalists think uh, news, news and newspapers are very important. Um, but uh, investors, you know, don't generally see a lot of potential there right now. So I kind of wanted to shift over then to local news, as you stated. What's the current mm-hmm. sort of health of local news these days what is uh what does it look like it's a mixed bag i think it's you know there's really no argument that um newspapers have had a very difficult time not just in the last couple years though that was made worse by the pandemic and the ad recession but going back probably 15 20 years and uh the basic cause of that is uh uh, big erosion in what used to be a terrific uh, advertising base and uh, a lot of losses uh, to the Internet, both both to vertical digital sites uh, and to the uh, platform companies, which have, have a lot of advertising uh, of their own. I, I don't think the, the total local news picture is uh, as grim as that sounds because we have the startups of, of a lot of interesting uh, 
digital alternatives, uh, some of them geographically targeted, some of them on a specific topic. Um, and uh, there are other players in, in uh, that would include public radio, uh, commercial radio, some uh, local broadcast stations. So the overall field is... Um, not uh, down and out, uh, though I think it's fair to say that there's still kind of a gap there um, in kinds of coverage that that uh, newspapers kind of could be counted on to do uh, 10, 15 years ago and, and have largely abandoned now. I've been talking with Rick Edmonds, writer and media business analyst for The Pointer, uh, about Lee Enterprises' rejection of a takeover offer from Alden Global Capital. Rick, thank you so much again for talking with me today. Great. Thanks. Good to be with you. When you think about the holidays, what comes to mind? Family? Festive music? A certain run-tongued gentleman in bright red pajamas? Well, if you're like our contributor, Jonah Chester then you're spending your holidays thinking about elections, redistricting, and voting. Every other Thursday, Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open government issues. This week, they chat about the state's ongoing redistricting process and a controversial investigation into last year's presidential election. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined uh, from my home recording studio for our every other week discussion of open government and transparency by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you doing this week? This is our first time talking since before Thanksgiving. I've been good, Jonah. It's been too long, though. It really has. And we have an episode that I'm very excited about. It's one I've been wanting to do for a while now. We're having an all-things voting-themed episode. Because when you think about the holidays, what pops into your mind? Because for me, it's voting and elections, because I'm a reporter and that's always in my mind. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump right in here. We have some newsy items that we're going to cover. But right off the top, let's talk about voting records. Tom, what as a citizen am I entitled to in terms of open government and voting records? Yeah, one of the big ones is the voter registration list. So the state keeps track of everybody who's registered to vote and anybody who wants to can get that whole list. Unfortunately, this is one of the circumstances where the law allows extra charges for records. So the uh, Wisconsin Elections Commission has set forth some fairly steep prices for these registration lists. And they basically get away with that because the people who really want these are the campaigns, so they know who to send flyers out to. But there's also lots of other voting records you can uh, take a look at, such as you can see all voting registration forms. You can take a look at absentee ballot envelopes, not the ballots themselves, but the envelopes. And you can also see the logs that the municipalities keep of absentee ballots. And there's also formal inspector statements that uh, have to be filed for every election, describing everything that went on and kind of verifying everything was done properly. And you can take a look at those, too. In terms of those fees for voter registration lists, is there like an average amount I'd be looking at there? Or does that kind of fluctuate wildly based on, I don't know, how granular I can get with the registration from specific areas? Yeah, you can buy the whole list or you can buy specific segments of it, but it, it's hundreds and thousands of dollars if you want 
you want lots of it. Uh, I do not make enough as a reporter to be able to request that particular record. So let's leave that one to the campaigns. Let's move on because you can't really talk about voting, especially these days, without also talking about redistricting, which, you know, it's a once every 10 years, extremely hot topic in Wisconsin. So talk to me. If people want to know more about the inner workings, the innards of the redistricting process, what can you get in terms of records on that one? Yeah, so start with who does the redistricting. And, you know, it starts with the legislative body, so our Senate and our Assembly. And while their floor session records are public, so the official votes that are taken on the floor when they're in session, there's a bunch of things that are hard to get. So the legislative caucuses themselves are completely exempt from the open meetings law. So when all the Republicans go into one room to talk about things or all the Democrats go into another room to talk about things, nobody else gets to go in there. And people who have been familiar with these things know legislators themselves can destroy all of their own records if they want to. So it's very difficult to get an individual record or individual representatives' records about the redistricting process too. So you're pretty limited there. So what's the other side of this? The other side of this is is the governor, because in Wisconsin, the governor can veto the proposed maps, which is why whenever we have split government, they basically never come to an agreement and things wind up in the courts. But let's talk about Governor Evers and his People's Maps Commission. So this is a, a group of people of all different backgrounds and specialities and expertise brought together to propose a series of potential maps. And that commission itself did a good job. It met publicly, you know, released agendas and notices properly. However, the commission itself split into several smaller, what they called work groups to do all the real work, all the nitty gritty stuff. And the meetings of those work groups were not held open to the public. And that's a problem because the real decision making by this government entity was done behind closed doors. And now they're saying, well, each one of these groups, you know, it only had three, four or five people on it. And then it was smaller than a quorum of the whole commission. So the commission itself wasn't meeting and didn't have to provide notices. That's true to an extent that the commission itself didn't need to put out notice of those. But each of those little work groups is actually a separate governmental body. When they wrote the open meetings law, they made sure you couldn't do this. You couldn't take your city council and say, well, we're going to have a small group go off and work together. Anytime you create a small group like that to do work, you've created either a committee itself or because it's a little easier to do this, it's a subunit. And the law says subunits of boards and commissions and committees count and they have to follow the open meetings law. They didn't do it here. Mm -hmm. While we're on election topics, another newsy item in the cycle these days is the investigation or audit or I don't know what the proper terminology here is. Oh, I wait, think. I think the proper terminology is cyber forensic ninja audit. I, th it's I think that's what they're at this day's. Keep those ninjas off of my ballots. But it's being conducted by Michael Gableman, sort of at the request of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. So this one's a little weird because there have been lawsuits tossed around, open government lawsuits about what folks are entitled to. So let me ask you an easy question here, Tom. Is this investigation subject to open records law? Yeah, definitely subject to open records law. It's, it's not subject to open meetings laws. There have been some talks about, you know, having interviews behind closed doors. Gableman, former Justice Gableman, is not a governmental body. He's one person. The, the meetings law never applies to one person. So that's out. But he's definitely performing a government function at the behest of a government agency. What he's doing is subject to the open records law. 
However, now, there's a lot of question, even still, about exactly how the law applies to this kind of an entity, you know, this kind of an investigation, and what records actually have to be released. So they've claimed in the past that uh, this is kind of analogous to a district attorney, and DA files are strictly off-limits. And so they, they've made that argument. Um, but they also haven't completely withheld their records, so they seem to have backed off of that somewhat. But also there's still the balancing test, this kind of subjective gray area we always get into. And there's a few things at issue here, and one of the big ones is for any investigation, if releasing a record would interfere with the investigation somehow, then it can be withheld. And you see that come up a lot from from uh, the, from police departments, and you see it come up sometimes with like internal investigations of potential misconduct. Uh, but that's been big at issue here. Uh, Gableman and crew have been releasing some records slowly. It's primarily been communications, especially external communications. They don't have a good argument for withholding those. But interestingly, there, there was a lawsuit involved here because one of the other ways you can get these records is Gableman is working as a contractor for another government authority. Either you could say it's Voss or you could say it's the assembly itself. Um, but you can make requests to Voss, and, and groups have done it, for these records under the contractor provision of the open records law, which says if government contracts with a private organization or a private person to do work, records of that work are subject to the open records law. So Voss denied those requests, kind of saying, well, I'm not the right person. You shouldn't be asking me. He got sued. He <laughs> lost. And we've just heard in the past couple days um, that the court ordered the release by a certain date of these records and he didn't turn them over. So the plaintiffs are back in court asking the judge to find Voss in contempt of court for refusing to obey this, this court order. Well, we've come to the end of our time for today's segment. I've been joined, as always, by our open government expert, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. Been a pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's 6.48 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When Dr. Amy Gilman became the director of the Chazen Museum in 2017, one of her biggest challenges was making the museum a place where all feel welcome to explore the many works of art. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, we'll travel back to a time when Gilman and Jennifer Fields shared their love of art, museums, and a little walkway connecting the old and the new. We are on the bridge of the museum. Inside, we are straddling the original Elvium building, which was finished in 1970, and the new Chazen building, which was just completed a number of years ago. One of the reasons why I chose this spot is because it is the spot that I return to when I need to think about where we started, right, where the museum started, where we are now, right, the, the original building, the new building, the link between the two things, and the fact that we are standing on what is now one of the main gateways to the campus. So the museum 
is both of the campus and of the community, right? So we need to be able to face the university and we need to be able to face the community. And the museum is a great bridge. It's, it's you know, we are physically a bridge here, but it is also that, uh, that there's a metaphor there for what museums are supposed to be doing, which is connecting to audience and community and not just visitors, but, you know, people near and far to have a discussion about not just about art, but about things that are going on and uh, museums can have a rich part of that dialogue. Amy, how do you invite people who don't necessarily feel like they're in on the conversation into the museum? You actually have to invite people into the building. We just think that because we are free and because we do all of this programming that, my gosh, who wouldn't come? Right? And that is such a passive way of thinking about what we do, right? Is that if we just put out a little sign that people will know where the door is and that they will come in and that they will then know how to get around, right? Whereas in reality, there are people who have not grown up coming to museums, who do not feel like they belong in these spaces. So what do you do to get them in and to get them to come back? Right? Because you can get people in with a specific program, but to get them to come back, you have to demonstrate that the invitation was not just for that, that you are actually programming by thinking about them. Also, you need to come up with vehicles to make sure that they feel that this space is also their space. You need to figure out how to be relevant to what people are interested in today. It's not about saying, oh, we're going to do this program because this kind of thing is hot right now. It's actually about saying, what are the things that people are interested in thinking about? What are they doing right now? And how are museums going to be a part of that dialogue? Because people will come for things that are so far outside of their normal interest if you give them a reason to do it. So really, it's a multifaceted approach, but it is about thinking about the museum as this space in which you can explore all of those things. But you can't just do that with your traditional audience. You don't want to lose your traditional audience, but if we want to acknowledge the kind of diversity of community in which we are trying to live within, you have to be relevant to a broader spectrum of people than those who have already self-selected that they're comfortable and that they will come back here. So Amy, how do you figure out all these big questions, all these big challenges and opportunities, as we like to say, <laughs> so it doesn't sound so daunting <laughs> when you've been here two months? I am coming in at a moment of great change for the institution. You have an incredible longtime director, Russell was here for 33 years, and I have nothing but respect for what he accomplished while he was here, right? The entire institution is actually sort of molded around one director, right? Because he was here for so long. That's inevitable. So there's a lot of change management that's going on right now. I was very clear when I was getting interviewed, when I was asked, you have a vision, a personal vision for the Chazen, that actually I reject that premise, Right. It is not my job to come in as someone who has spent a very small fraction of my time here at the museum and just say, this is the vision. I'm going to put myself on top of it, you know, on top of this institution and change it to this. It's actually my job to set up a process by which we can think about what we need to be, right? Vanguard of 
university art museums in the 21st century and realize together what that vision is actually going to look like. It will be richer and deeper and we will get more investment, not only from the Chase and staff, but from the university and hopefully from the community if we are more inclusive about the process to get there. Amy, when you find yourself faced with these tasks, is there a work of art or anything that you go to that sort of quiets the mind? Do you have a favorite piece? Mine is always the Cabinet Elemente. Mm. Like that's where, when I'm having a hard time needing to figure something out, yeah. it's one of the places where I can just sort of go and collect myself. Mm -hmm. Is there a work of art or an object or anything that does that for you? So I like that you've asked the question in that way because that implies, as you said, as we were walking up here, that you have long-term friendships with these objects, right? You have relationships. Maybe friendship is a little bit um, too specific. And I am still developing my relationships with the objects here. So while there have been, uh, there are some places like the bridge here that we're standing on that I return to again and again. What I have started doing since I have been here is when I need a break, right? When I need to think, when I need to gather my thoughts, I kind of just let myself come out of my office and come upstairs and wander a little bit because I will almost always end up looking at an object I hadn't looked at before because I, it, so much of it is new to me. And even though I've spent now a lot of time in the galleries, it's everything, you know, I'm sort of, I'm continuing to discover. So I'll find myself, right, you know, in, in a different corner of the museum or up on the fourth floor in the Elvium building or, you know, in front of, in, in front of any particular piece. And I am discovering as I go the things that strike me, the things that struck me originally that I now look at differently. So I feel like I'm actually developing the relationship with the collection and the building and sort of like, you know, the space in which it's housed. So it's not so much that it's a break from, you know, whatever is going on in my head. It's that exploring the collection in this way. And I don't try to run through the whole museum every week or anything like that. I just take a little corner right? Spend some time with an object or three objects or a gallery or something like that is it helps remind me what it is I'm trying to do here. It, it kind of brings me back to uh, center, right? I have my little chasen moment, if you will, and then I can go on with the rest of my day. There's one thing I always say about a museum when I'm in it. I don't care if it's one that I've been coming to since the 80s or a new museum. I always tend to, sometimes I don't even know what I'm looking at or where I'm going, but I always seem to end up where I'm supposed to be. I love that you've described it that way because really that's a much more succinct way of saying what I was, what, what I, what I just took five minutes to describe, right? <laughs> My little wandering is that I usually end up in front of an object or two or in a gallery where I'm suddenly struck that how stunning that, that the things that are going on in this gallery are related to the problem that I am trying to solve in my head. How did that happen? Well, of course, your mind works in kind of amazing ways. And I think that actually I want to encourage more people to have that kind of relationship with the museum, not just to get someone to come here when we have an event or because they're interested in a single exhibition, but also could you... Do you want to come here and just walk in the museum, it's free, and then walk upstairs and be here for 15 minutes? You don't have to come to the museum for hours. It's like there's no time requirement to have a deep and engaging experience. 
Just go look at one object. Just go take, <laughs> and in fact, I would suggest that the more you try to pack it in, the less of a sort of deeper engagement you will have over, like overall, right? That may be a great way to do to see a museum in a city that you're only going to spend a very short amount of time in as a very, very high level, but not very deep kind of view. But if you really want to, if you live here, or if you live near here, or if you're going to be coming to Madison periodically, or if you're a student here for four years or eight years or however long you're here, you develop the relationship with the museum, not by coming here for an event. You develop the relationship because you decide that, oh, I'm walking by here and I have 20 minutes before my class. And I think I'm going to go in and sit in that little niche where we have the chairs where you can look outside and you can see the objects. That's a great space. And that is the kind of space that I want us to create more opportunities to have those kinds of experiences. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributors Tom Kamenick, Jonah Chester, and Jennifer Fields. Super Dave Lorenz engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slater. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. You can stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can listen wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and 